If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. If your sister occupies the bathroom for an unadjusted period of time, can you declare the emergency act and have her forcefully removed? Hey! Hey! Yeah, man. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. The gang all here. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Ooh, what a gooey day it is in Canadian politics. You're going to need a shower after all of this. It is, uh, ooh, it just makes me feel all greasy. I, I feel like I, 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 as a kid, I had a job at Woe sweeping floors and emptying the garbage cans after school. And one of the worst jobs you could get was cleaning the grease pit behind the lunch counter. I kind of feel like I've just cleaned the grease pit today after watching the Ottawa mayor testify about the Emergencies Act. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing uh, when politicians are caught in a corner, how they just, uh, look, something shiny over here. Look, it's not my fault. It's their fault over there. Uh, absolutely incredible to uh, listen to the Ottawa mayor today. And it started off uh, with him painting the picture of how ugly it was. And we certainly know about all those uh, scenarios. Uh, well, you know, from uh, raves and dance parties and bouncy castles uh, and pig roast to, uh, you know, pooping in the snow and everything else bad. We've heard about uh, what had happened in Ottawa. But to watch the mayor fumble and blame others, uh, is just absolutely incredible. And initially they had said that they didn't have any intelligence information that this was going to develop into what it was. And there is evidently uh, quite a bit of it that says that, you know, this was going to happen, including notes from the uh, hotel association saying, you know, we got people booking up tons of rooms here. You maybe want to look at this. Uh, so, and now shifting the blame to the provincial government, which I find just, you know, and are they to blame? Well, I guess all three levels of government are to blame because, uh, everybody dropped the ball, but this started with the prime minister picking a fight with the truckers and then they all showed up and he ran away and left this to fall on the soft round shoulders of the mayor of Ottawa, which we saw today. Oh my goodness. It was embarrassing. And then the police chief, obviously. So, and now they're looking for, well, well, and, uh, and anyway, so, uh, I'm going to, uh, this morning it was kind of interesting because it was all about the setup. And then in the afternoon, the tougher questions started. And I want to read you a couple of things, uh, and, and this is to give you two different points on, uh, what has been said this morning. Uh, the first thing is from the Toronto Star. The second one's from the National Post. Uh, the Star says Prime Minister Justin Trudeau privately slammed Ontario Premier Doug Ford for hiding, for hiding. That's a quote from his obligations to help end last winter's freedom convoy. Uh, the comment was included in a type summary of a February 8th phone call between, uh, the Prime Minister and the Mayor of Ottawa, Jim Watson. Uh, where, of course, they were asking, the mayor asking for help. In the call, Trudeau said Watson expressed frustrata- frustration with what they saw as a lack of involvement by Ford's progressive conservative administration at Queen's Park. Doug Ford, this is a quote from the prime minister, Doug Ford has been hiding from his responsibility on it for political reasons, Trudeau told the mayor, according to this summary. If they keep dragging their feet, I'm happy to call them out on it 
said the mayor. It'd be nice to have something, though, firmed up from the federal government to shame them. So they're asking Ford for help, and Trudeau hasn't even supplied the Mounties. And he went on in the call to say, hey, what about the Mounties? Including somebody from, uh, uh, he was telling uh, Trudeau's cabinet ministers, show me the Mounties. And the federal government said, well, there's 250 there. He goes, well, they're all government, they're all uh, protecting government landmarks, like the House of Commons, Parliament Hill, and the residence of the prime minister at Rideau College. So, and, and there's the prime minister accusing the premier of hiding. So this all centers around the Ford government skipping regular meetings between Watson and the federal cabinet ministers. This is from the National Post. And Watson expressed his frustration uh, that the RCMP resources were also not committed. Again, Doug Ford has been hiding from his responsibility for political reasons. As you highlighted, the prime minister told the mayor. Trudeau said, it's important we do not let them get away from that. Oh, my goodness. Listen to these two liberal politicians politicking while Ottawa suffers. Trudeau said it was important we don't let them get away from that. Watson said he shared the prime minister's frustration uh, and they wouldn't participate in the tri-party committee. Uh, And then he said Watson says he was happy to call them out if the province continued to drag its feet, but then it said it would be easier if the federal government was making clear commitments of its own. And then, of course, talked about, yeah, you've sent the RCMP officers, but they're all covering government buildings. They're not helping the cause. So an unbelievable turn of events in the afternoon session of this. And, you know, there it is, the prime minister calling out the premier of Ontario for hiding and avoiding his responsibilities, saying it's important we don't let them get away from uh, that. That is an exact quote from the prime minister. So here's the prime minister accusing Doug Ford of hiding after he picks a fight with the truckers. It's unbelievable. So the prime minister picks a fight, he runs away and leaves everyone else to clean up the mess. As one listener describes this, this is like playing shinny hockey and you got some little scrappy guy who picks a fight and then as soon as the fight starts and the gloves are dropped, he runs to the dressing room. And then once in the dressing room, blames everybody else for the fight. So some incredible hindsight, or some incredible insight into the conversations that went on behind the scenes with the mayor of Ottawa and the prime minister, uh, cranky, because there was no plan. And at the end of the day, uh, once a plan was established, everything started to roll. Everybody was moving. So fascinating to see the politics going on behind the scene. It's unfortunate the prime minister didn't come out and, you know, speak in the first few days of this mess instead of having these kinds of conversations, calling out the, the premier after the fact for a fight that, in fact, the prime minister started. 
unbelievable what we're seeing through this. And this is only like the first couple of days. Hamiltonians who frequent the city's downtown farmer's market are getting a rare opportunity to express their thoughts, views on what the York Boulevard landmark uh, landmark should look like uh, moving forward. A business development consultant for the city is hoping users, potential users, will take 10 minutes in the next month to suggest improvements via a visioning exercise as part of a review approved by councillors uh, back in February. To talk more about all of this, Tyson McMahon with us, MA Business Development Consultant, AgriFood, and food and beverage processing and with us now tyson thanks for the time i hope you're well i'm good scott thanks for having me this market has been around for a bazillion years uh, i think it's 180 something years uh obviously people want to see that continue um why does it seem that the farmer's market has has the difficulties that it does or or seems to have the difficulties uh ongoing that it does considering hamilton is where it is i mean i could see this maybe 10 years ago 20 years ago but even where the city is now i'm surprised that uh this hasn't gained more traction and and has moved forward yeah and, and i can say uh Probably most farmers market have have had their challenges regardless of the the community, big or small. But I know with the Hamiltons one, and, and you're right, it's been around for 185 years, and with that has been um, some significant change over that 185 years. And if you if people uh, have had a chance to see the market, they can actually see some posters uh, with some great images of how the market has evolved uh, over the last again 185 years. And and, and again, I think that's what we're here. Uh, trying to go and speak with the community about is is really we want to make sure that the the market for the next 185 years um, really reflects the community and their wants and needs. And I think with the with the significant population change, with the changing nature of the downtown, I think that's what we're looking to capture here and really hear back from the community about. So what are the newer challenges for the uh, farmer's market? Obviously, everybody's been through a global pandemic. That's one thing. But again, as we've said, these these issues were there prior to that. Uh, what are the challenges? What does it need to do moving forward? Yeah, I think some of the, the challenges, like any market, is, is, is reflecting the needs of the community, right? I know a lot of markets are farmer's market, as the Hamilton one is. Others are market with more food vendors, uh, and then entrepreneurs in the food space that are really trying to, to gauge products, see if there's a customer base and hopefully grow and uh, grow out their space of their vendor stall and, and get into a brick and mortar store or, or serve the online um, functions of, of the kind of the food industry. Right. So I think really some of their challenge challenges, again, are not unique to Hamilton, but really with a growing city at, at what we're seeing, uh, we just want to make sure that the community feels as if the market is theirs who decides this who runs this is is this a good template moving forward sure so right now really whose guide this work has been council right so um city staff had went out and was going to was doing some governance and operating review work and brought an interim report back to council and really it was council's will that that made the direction that before we make any finalized changes to the governance and operation of the market, we want to hear back. They want to hear back from the community and to ensure that the market reflects what they want to see um, for the next 185 years. So we, we've gone out and we've hired Project for Public Spaces, which are really the I would say the best in the business. They are international experts when it comes to markets, whether that's working internationally in the U.S. or right here in Ontario. Uh, they're really, I would say, again, the experts in the field, and uh, we're going to bring that expertise to really help support to make sure the successful 
um, environment in operation of the market moving forward. Um, as you said, other cities, other markets uh, have been doing this you know, for extended periods of time. What can we learn from them? Is it a management issue? Is it a product issue? Like you said, perhaps not relating to what the residents need. C- can you see from this distance where, where, where the focus needs to be? Yeah, and and I I think it's it's a bit of a bit of both, right? I, I think uh, the market in terms of the product offerings, operating hours, operating days, at least that's initially what we've heard from the community at large uh, to date is they want to see more hours of operation, they want to see better product offerings, whether that's um, more farmers at the market, more seating at the market for those food vendors. Um, and we also heard that they want they want to see um, really the market succeed, whether that is um, financially, but also operational. Um, really, this is this is something that we're tackling both the um, the state of the market as well as the operation. So uh, to answer your question, I think it's a bit of both that we're really trying to tackle because they're, they're both crucial to the success of the market moving forward. When you think of farmers markets, you think of farmers, you think of vegetables, produce, uh, uh, you know, everything that they them bringing their wares into the city on a weekend to sell and such. How many farmers are actually at the market now? So I I believe we have uh, two, if not one more farmers at the farmers market. And that's something that we're hoping to address um, as part of this. Right. Is it. Does do we want? Does the public want this to be a farmers market? If so, what do we what do we have to do in order to attract those local farmers to come down on Saturday, take the time out of their busy schedules to really come and offer their products? Or is this a market that we want more food vendors, more food operations? Right. And again, we've heard from both vendors and and customers and the general public that one or the other, in their opinion, would, would work. And, and I think that's part of the goal here is to really understand what kind of market do we want? Is it a mar- public market? Is it a farmer's market? And then how do we make sure that that is successful moving forward? So how do we offer input, Tyson? What do we do? Sure. No, that's a great question, Scott. So right now on engage.hamilton.ca, there is the Hamilton's Farmer's Market Visioning Exercise Project page. So on that page, there is a public survey for um, the public customers, whether you're a customer shopping there once a week or if you've never been there at all, we want to hear feedback from the public. So that takes take about five to ten minutes to complete a survey. Again, that's on engage.hamilton.ca. There is also um, kind of a comment section or idea brainstorming section on the project page, which people can kind of leave comments similar to uh, a blog post. Um, as well, we're hoping to have a uh, public workshop in November. We're actually looking at November 12th from 1 to 3 p.m. at the farmer's market. We're just in the process of uh, kind of releasing registration for that. And that's going to be a bit of an engagement exercise uh, where we're going to have the public go out to the market, come back and report back as to what their um, thoughts are when it comes to programming and design ideas. So it's going to be a really interactive session that we're hosting in November. But again, for the public, um, if they're either available on the 12th or if they can take five to 12, 10 minutes to go to engage.hamilton.ca, anything is appreciated. And, and really, we want to hear back from the public as this vision is going to be a public vision. And so we need to hear back from them. Tyson McMahon with us, business development consultant, City of Hamilton, uh, moving forward with the Hamilton Farmers Market. You can have input, have the city's, uh, hit the city's website for more. Tyson, thanks so much. Good luck with this moving forward. 
Yeah, thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Monday saw the fourth anniversary of the day that cannabis was legalized in Canada. Uh, Some observers are wondering why it's taken so long for a legal government-regulated weed marketplace to overtake the illicit market. And Toronto shoppers are now able to request cannabis deliveries through Uber Eats. As of this week, that is the first time that has happened anywhere in the world, I believe. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Michael Armstrong, Associate Professor, Goodman School of Business, Brock University. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for inviting me. So here we are four weeks out. I remember when this uh, was all happening. It's like we talked to you every four days, it seemed. Uh, what are your thoughts four days, or sorry, four years out of this on how uh, we have done with all of this and, and just your thoughts on, on where we are four years out? Oh, big question. Okay, general answer. Uh, it's a success. It's not a roaring success. There's lots of things to be improved. Uh, but nonetheless, we actually have legal cannabis in Canada. You can choose to smoke up a joint, uh, eat a pot brownie, and you're not a criminal. Unlike almost every other country in the world, uh, even the United States, despite all those states passing their own laws, uh, cannabis is still federally illegal everywhere in that country. So, We've made a lot of progress, but um, you might say, okay, we've kind of got through the teenage growth spurt. Now we're into the young adult stage. <laughs> we have to figure out our lives now. Uh, we've got maybe still too many producers. Some towns have too many stores, some not enough. Um, where would you like to start? What about the black market? Initially, when this was all started, it was all about the black market and trying to put an end to that. Have, has this made a dent in the black market? It's definitely made a dent. Uh, It's difficult to measure the size of that dent because those folks don't like to respond to government surveys. But uh, the best measure we have from Statistics Canada suggests the the illicit dealers have lost about half of their market share uh, over the last four years, Um, which if you think about any other industry, that would be a huge change. So that's a lot of progress, but of course, it also means the other half is still there. Um, Most of the uh, openly operating uh, cannabis dispensaries, the unlicensed shops have disappeared. Uh, but there, some of those people have moved online. So there's lots of uh, illicit dealers uh, operating online. Um, but we have shown that if you have uh, legal products, uh, you make them conveniently available in stores, you make the prices competitive, you make the quality good. Uh, consumers will switch, and we we see from surveys that more and more people, in fact, are switching. Uh, You talked about the gray area, and there seems to be a bit of lobbying for the industries in these gray areas, specifically online. How does that all work? How how is it that that illegal operations are still allowed to operate? Well, they're not allowed to operate, but (laughs) the uh, police forces, you know, it's relatively... I would say relatively easy. It can be challenging uh, administratively, but nonetheless, if you have, if there's a physical store, you've got a target, you can raid it, you can blockade it, uh, you can catch people, lock them up, whatever. But online, it's a much more nebulous, you know, how do you track that down? Even if you shut down that website, another one can be opened up very quickly. Uh, so that's much more challenging for law enforcement. Um, of course, one way you deal with it is you buy, is by offering a good legal industry. So if you think back three and a half years ago, those first few months, uh, we didn't have any stores in, in, in Ontario. Uh, it wasn't until April, even then we only had about two dozen for the whole province. 
when you were when we were in that kind of situation, it was basically pointless to try and uh, crack down the black market because nobody else had nobody had an alternative. But now we created a legal alternative. Uh, it's not guaranteed, but now we can try and attract those customers away. We're seeing some of these companies struggling. Uh, you talked about online stores. Uh, online stores, whether legal or illegal, um, how do these stack up against bricks and mortar? Is that the better template moving forward? Um, well, the, the store is struggling and, and the concept of, of buying in stores. One thing we learned very quickly is Canadian consumers want to buy their legal cannabis in stores. And provinces like some of the maritime provinces that had lots of stores very quickly, uh, they got like 98% of their sales through stores. So we in Ontario were out slower, but uh, I think we're up to about 96% going through the stores. So stores are clearly very important. Um, but some people like to buy online. So we still have the OCS. Uh, Ontario's recently made a change partly because of all our COVID experiences to let uh, individual retail stores uh, sell. And as you mentioned in the intro, now we even have an a independent delivery service. Well, it's kind of set up, it's, a, it's Uber service, but it's actually the retail store employees who are delivering it by Uber. But hey, it's another convenience for consumers. Are illegal operators trying to bridge the gap, get into uh, illegal operation? Is that worth it for them? That's, that is one of the areas I think Canada maybe did not do as good a job as it could have. Um, the federal government, when it set up its Cannabis Act, uh, set up very high standards for cleanliness, inspection, product testing. That's all great for safety, but it made it practically impossible for any of the uh, what you might call leg legacy growers, the people who are already growing pot in the shed or a greenhouse in their backyard, there was no realistic way they could go legit and join the legal industry. They'd have to start from scratch. So instead of you know kind of bringing them into the legal industry, they were just left, you know, basically they just kept operating, which means we have competition. With the retailers uh, at the provincial level, um, the provinces, uh, you know, Ontario, most of the Western provinces, we didn't make it impossible for them to come in. Uh, in fact, the law said, yeah, even if you have a you know, record for minor possession, you can still get a license. But the fact that there was a long delay in getting those licenses here in Ontario, most people, most entrepreneurs had to wait until 2020, two years, basically. Uh, that made it really tough for somebody who's trying to transition. So I think that's something we didn't do a good job of. And consequently, that's one reason we still have a fair number of uh, illegal offers, we never managed to bring them into our system. Uh, what about Uber jumping on board with delivery? Your thoughts? Uh, my first thought is, hey, okay, it's a it's a precedent. Sure, it's another route to try. I'm not convinced it's actually going to be a big deal because, as I said, you know, first of all, almost all the legal sales are going uh, on or through stores, uh, probably because people want to see the product before they buy it, maybe uh, sniff it, get some advice. Uh, but nonetheless, okay, it's another channel. If you are used to buying your uh, cannabis through an illegal dealer from a website, hey, who's going to bring it to your door in a little baggie? Hey, we've got a service now. Uh, you can go to a legal site, place your order online, and have a driver deliver it to your front door. You know, there's one less reason to go to that uh, illicit dealer. Dr. Michael Armstrong with us, Associate Professor at Goodman School of Business at Brock University. Cannabis, fourth anniversary this week uh, of uh, being legal, and now Uber Eats jumping on board. Mike, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you for inviting me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton.
Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. And a fascinating new exhibit at the Dundas Museum and Archives gives visitors a chance to look into our past through glass photo negatives from anywhere from 70 to 170 years ago. And it's fantastic to look at area landmarks, area streets, and uh, area residents, specifically what we wore back then. Uh, well, I didn't, but you know, and, uh, it's just, it's a, it's a great trip down, uh, memory lane and we can always learn from our history. Let's bring in Austin Strutt exhibits, uh, sorry, exhibitions coordinator with the Dundas Museum and Archives and with us now. Austin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I hope you're well too, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on. So tell us about this exhibit. Uh, some of the photos I've seen, absolutely fascinating. Tell us what you've got there. So this exhibit features a part of the collection that we have at the Dundas Museum that uh, uh, we all who work here have always been really excited about. So we have a huge collection of local photography, but uh, within that collection, we have a a group of original glass negatives. So these are the original pieces of glass that some of the photos were uh, taken on. And uh, uh, the collection ranges from about... um, the 1850s, the late 1850s, uh, some of the earliest photography in Canada, all the way up until the 1930s. And uh, what makes them so unique is that uh, they are of an incredible, incredible quality. If you think about it, uh, uh, you can um, you know, project a whole movie right, on a, on a movie screen with mm-hmm. just a 35-millimeter you know, strip of film. So if that negative is the size of, say, uh, 8x10 or even larger, the amount of detail that are captured in those images is... Uh, uh, Really just astounding to look at. And you talked about glass negatives. So talk about the technology of the day and how it progressed. What exactly is a glass negative? Yeah, so, so a glass negative is really just like any other photography negative. Of course, you know, we all have phones now and digital photography, but uh, a lot of people will still remember taking photos on film. So uh, before uh, film was a, uh, uh, commercially available, photographers would actually use pieces of glass, glass panes coated in a photosensitive emulsion uh, of silver nitrate um, to capture their photos within the camera. So they would coat that glass, it would have to hide in the dark room, and then it would be put in a slide and put in the camera and exposed to light. And uh, they chose glass because although it's breakable, it was a relatively stable medium and it was free of blemishes. And so you had a, an image that didn't have any distortion and uh, uh, was full of, full of quality. Uh, it's amazing when you see these group shots or, or shots of landscape or whatever, how clear they, they really are. But when you're, when you're looking at the group shots, it's like you look at every individual face to see what they're doing because it's not necessarily that they're all looking in the same direction. It's like each, yeah. pic, each picture tells, uh, uh, well, a thousand stories. Yes, it's so true. And, and for us uh, who work here at the museum, uh, they're neat not only as works of art in and of themselves, as beautiful photographs, but as sources for history. So we often go back to these glass negatives to look into the little details of signposts and building construction and, and uh, bits and pieces to, to help uh, uh, find historical dates we're looking for or reconstruct uh, uh, things and solve mysteries. And so the, the aim of the exhibit is to sort of uh, give our visitors a chance to do the same kind of thing, to take a close look at all of the neat little details hidden in all these photos that you might miss. It's fascinating to see when you look at these how stoic everyone looks and how serious everyone looks and also reasonably well-dressed for the times. 
Very true. People took a lot of care in how they dressed. There was a lot of effort with all those buttons and, uh, and hooks and things. Yeah. Um, and you're absolutely right. A lot of people thought of a photograph back then very much like you would think of a, of a, of a portrait, right? Because that was what they were used to. Uh, so if you sat for a photo, just like you were sitting for a portrait, you kind of wanted to look very stoic. But uh, there is a part of the collection, um, there's a special collection within these glass negatives that are all photographs that were taken around the turn of the century by a fellow named uh, J.B. Bertram. He was part of the Bertram family in town who owned the big machine works, and he was an amateur photographer. And what make his photos stand out so much are they're often photos of family and friends, and they're very private, and people are very often goofing around and smiling and laughing with each other, and it's very uh, it's very precious to see that in uh, in images of people from the turn of the century. What do people say? We've only got a few seconds left. What do people say sure. who view these? What's the reaction? Well, I, I think what people really enjoy is that uh, the historical photos of Dundas. There's so many historical buildings left in Dundas. So much of the yeah. old town has been preserved that when they come in, they go, oh, I know that building. Oh, I get coffee in that building. You know, there's the post office. There's the Collins. There's the music hall. And so they can place themselves historically. They can see where they're, they're looking in this image. And uh, it, it really uh, it makes all those connections in your brain where you go, oh, I know what I'm looking at when. It makes you feel very connected to the history. So I think that for people who know the town, that's very satisfying. But also for people who are just interested in photography, uh, seeing how the process worked is another thing that people uh, have mentioned to me. How do we see this exhibit? How long does it last? So the exhibit runs until January 14th. It's uh, free at the Dundas Museum, though, though we are, uh, do always ask for uh, donations. Um, but the uh, yeah, just come on into the Dundas Museum at uh, 139 Park Street West in Dundas and uh, take a look around, as well as uh, we have some other galleries about Dundas history, uh, local artists. Uh, we actually have a Halloween escape room coming up, so there's lots of things to see for October. Austin Strutt with us, uh, Exhibitions Coordinator with the Dundas Museum and Archives. Currently a new exhibit of glass photo negatives from 70 to 170 years ago on display. Austin, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck. Oh, thank you so much, Scott. Take care. You know, as we're looking at what has happened with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, something that was supposed to take a few days now, I think we're dragging on to eight months or so uh, with this. And, um, you know, I can list all of the events that have happened, but the destruction, as we've all seen, is just absolutely horrific. And uh, now with the addition of drones being used into uh, cities like Kiev and such, uh, just further traumatizing the people that uh, that are trying to rebuild. As I'm watching all of this, um, you know, and, and as you watch it on, on nightly newscasts and such, it's just it's incredible the amount of devastation. They have literally just blown the bejeebers. Uh, out of Ukraine. What happens when all of this is over? Who rebuilds all of this? How do these people who are literally just standing amongst uh, piles of rubble, how do they move on? How do you, where do you start? Uh, let's bring in Marcus Kolga, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad and founder of disinfowatch.org and is with us now. Marcus, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm, I am well indeed. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Uh, you know, obviously the horrific images that we're all seeing, uh, literally complete devastation in some areas and, and literally people just standing around wondering what the heck to do. What happens after all of this, Marcus? And maybe this is premature to talk about, but what, what happens? How, how do these people get their lives back? How do they, how do they rebuild? 
I, that's a great question, Scott. Um, you know, I don't think in, in this modern era, at least not since the Second World War, have we seen this sort of civilian destruction um, caused by a foreign state. Um, we, we just haven't seen it. This is unprecedented. Other than, you know, I think it, um, maybe Syria might be an example, but this is a, a government that inflicted that sort of damage on itself along with the Russians. Um, but uh, we haven't seen anything like this. Uh, and you're right. I mean, uh, during the, the past eight months of what was supposed to be a three-day operation, uh, Vladimir Putin has really targeted um, enormous amounts of Ukrainian infrastructure, apartment buildings, schools, hospitals, entire cities have been turned into rubble. And so, um, you know, I think this is something that the Western world uh, and Ukraine, of course, needs to start thinking about is how does it rebuild? Because it's not going to take a few hundred million dollars. This is going to take billions, probably trillions of dollars uh, to rebuild that country into just into what it was before the war. And, and of course, Ukraine wants to join the Western world. So there's still much more to be done. But uh, but just to get it on, onto its back onto its feet, there's there's uh, it's going to take a, a ton of money to do that. Um, where is this money going to come from? Uh, this is this is a very good question. Um, you know, I think that uh, a lot of analysts, uh, a lot of foreign policy experts are are looking at Russia. Uh, you know, this is what happened in, in the Second World War. Germany was forced to pay reparations uh, for the damages it caused throughout Europe. Uh, Russia should also be held to account uh, for all of the damage that it has caused. Uh, Russia needs to be on the hook for this. Uh, and there are, are several ways to do that. We've, of course, uh, sanctioned uh, at least $125 million dollars. Uh, worth of Russian assets that are located in this country. Now, that's a drop in the bucket, of course, when it comes to the, the, the total price tag of rebuilding Ukraine. But, um, but there are, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars more in, uh, in corporate Russian assets that are in this country. And if you take the total sum of all the sanctions or all the Russian assets that have been sanctioned around the world, that number could be much higher. So what we need to start doing is working with our allies, talking with our allies, uh, and figuring out a way to take those frozen assets, convert them into real dollars, and we can start applying those at least fairly soon to that rebuilding of Ukraine. But, you know, the long-term process, uh, that's still a big question mark as to how we hold Russia to account and get them to pay for, for all of this destruction that it's caused. Is this assuming, Marcus, that Ukraine wins? I mean, this is not over yet. Is it too early to have this discussion, depending on who ends up in control of this area? Yeah, well, it depends on who you talk to. You know, uh, from from certainly my perspective, and I think a lot of uh, Western governments, uh, and they've said this publicly, it's not a question of if Ukraine wins. Ukraine must win this war. Hmm. There are no other options. There's no option of of uh, allowing Vladimir Putin to take uh, any more territory than he already has. And in fact, I think most Western leaders uh, have finally come around to the view that Vladimir Putin needs to be pushed back uh, beyond uh, Ukraine's borders so that the territorial, in territorial integrity of Ukraine from its 1991 borders, which means the, uh, the Crimean Peninsula, that all of those territories are liberated and returned to Ukraine. Only then can we start negotiating any sort of peace and talking about peace with Vladimir Putin. Because uh, if we if we allow him to take any inch, 
and maintain and, and control any inch of Ukrainian territory, um, that sets, a, sets a, a pretty dangerous precedent because that means that uh, w- at that point, we are willing to negotiate with Vladimir Putin, and he won't stop there. Um, those, are the, those of us who have been watching Vladimir Putin for the past 22 years know that he uh, has a voracious appetite when it comes to conflict and uh, his and uh, regaining sort of Soviet uh, imper- imperial era territory. And he will continue doing this until we put a stop to it. Uh, and that means doing it right now in Ukraine. So we can't afford to let him, uh, re- his forces remain. We need to keep uh, giving Ukraine the defensive uh, equipment that it needs to defeat Russia. We need to ma- uh, maintain those sanctions that we have right now. We need to keep pouring them on. And we need, to, as I said earlier, we need to uh, uh, liquidate many of those assets in order to help fund uh, the rebuilding of Ukraine once this is all over. Marcus Kolga with us, senior fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad and founder of DisInfoWatch.org. What will it take to rebuild Ukraine once this hell is over? Marcus, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me on, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Municipal elections coming up less than a week away, October uh, 24th. We're going to have more of the candidate, uh, the candidates on the mayoral candidates uh, over the next few days, of course. Uh, and various pollings in various areas. I've heard some things, some suggesting that there's going to be a low vo- voter turnout and others suggesting there's going to be a higher voter turnout. I guess there's been more. Uh, participation in the advanced polls, which I, I guess makes sense. But at the end of the day, if you want change, I'm guessing you're going to turn out. If you're happy where you don't want change, you don't care, uh, you're not going to see a great uh, voter turnout. Uh, when it comes to polling, what does this all mean? Let's bring in Andrew Enns, Executive Vice President at Leger's Winnipeg office, and with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks for uh, having me on your program again. So uh, in various areas, there's various uh, local uh, polling and such, uh, talking about where each candidate is and such. Uh, we're seeing it certainly on a smaller level with the municipal elections. But what role do, plo- uh, do polls play during an election campaign? Uh, what's the benefit of having this information? Well, I think for you know, and and I think it's it's been something that's developed over time. But I think it is a it they are. Um, they are a sort of a news item that voters tend to look at. Um, I think they can provide some, uh, you know, uh, a, a fairly easy story for for journalists uh, and people like yourself to to bring into a program and, and create some conversation and some, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, even a little bit of a, you know, uh, you know, good discussion on because some people may agree with things and others won't, but that generates some good conversation. Um, they can at times, uh, you know, also outline kind of potential for, for, uh, as you talked about it in your lead in there, um, they can be a, a precursor to some potential change. Maybe there's a trend going. So I, I do think they can, they can add a bit of a, you know, depending again, a little bit on the election, they can add a little bit of excitement to the race and, and some, uh, some talking points to, uh, to get people sort of connected and engaged in the actual, uh, election itself 
When it comes to polling and participation, and you talked about uh, participation, getting people involved, it seems to be tougher at the municipal level. Uh, what's the difference between municipal and, say, provincial or federal? Why is there interest in one, not the other? They, uh, one and not the other. They often say, if you really want to make change, you got to vote at the municipal level. That's where your vote will really have an impact. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is a, it is a bit ironic because, uh, you know, in terms of the three levels of government, municipal struggles uh, the most in terms of voter turnout. Traditionally, it's it's among the lowest of uh, of the elections, and then and then you get provincial, and and depending on um, provincial voting turnouts can actually vary a fair amount. I mean, we had uh, you know I was just I was doing some polling in in your last provincial election for media, and I think you and I talked a bit about uh, about results there, and the turnout was was quite low this year, but it but it has in previous years been higher, and so. So it can fluctuate, and and the federal numbers tend to be sort of traditionally the highest. Um, I think in part some of that is um, is the fact that there's uh, you know maybe such high profile. Uh, you get the the big leader tours, you get the prime minister. There's quite uh, quite a lot of uh, you know national advertising, and and maybe that's what helps drive that vote a bit. Although even at the national level, I mean, I think we saw. If I recall correctly, 2015 was a particularly, um, uh, you know, uh, active election. There was a really high voter turnout, in part because the uh, the uh, one of the candidates who ultimately won and became prime minister, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau, had a number of policies that really sort of captured the attention of uh, of a more youthful voter, the young adult. Uh, the you know the mayor there was the marijuana policy and then some of the stuff on climate change and that really um, and in fact on on reform of voting itself and and that really engaged that uh, that demographic specifically and that drove up voter turnout but it since the last couple of elections has actually dropped off um, uh, you know dropped off a bit. How much of this has to do with voter happiness, contentment? If they're happy, they're content. They're not as interested. If they're riled up, if they're angry and they want change, they're more apt to show up or pay interest. Yeah, you're right, Scott. There, there is a, a bit of a relationship there. Um, you know, if uh, I would say there's two things. If they're if they're really content with with the current uh, the current government, the current situation. Uh, then you you know you might not get uh, you know a strong turnout. Although it, it depends if if there's a really you know strong you know strong challenge that wants to try to upset the apple cart. You can motivate people who want to preserve what they've got. They're comfortable with what they have, and so you can get people motivated to come out. Um, but certainly, when you get into a situation when when it's a, a so-called change election, and, and we've heard of those, and and uh, I think in Ontario, the last one was probably in twenty uh, you know twenty eighteen. There was a fairly significant movement to to want to change the uh, change of the mm-hmm. government, and uh, and you can certainly see uh, you know a motivated population. But but from an overall turnout perspective, you have to be careful because in some cases, if you're if you're a traditional supporter of a of a party that's not in favor that you're um you know that you're 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 the one being changed it actually can it can actually depress that voter's participation they may not bother turning out like they're not necessarily happy with with uh, with their party but they won't vote for the other party and so they don't come out and there's been a couple of instances where you know we've had low voter turnout and it's, and it's been because 
one of the party leaders or, you know, hasn't performed well. And so that party supporters, um, they won't support another party, but they don't feel really motivated to support the party they traditionally do. And so they'll, they'll stay home and, and, uh, that can actually depress voter turnout a bit. Incumbents seem to have the advantage, especially in municipal politics, just name recognition and such. Uh, with the mayor's race for Hamilton, uh, the incumbent is stepping down and a completely yeah. new slate. How does that change things? I think that uh, that actually is a, it's a great point, and that actually is another contributor of that can can drive up voter turnout. Um, mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. Incumbencies, uh, you know, uh, always kind of a uh, a bonus factor for for the incumbent in terms of that name rec, and they usually it's usually worth a few points in terms of ballot support, and that can be federally and provincially, but but certainly at the municipal level, that's a that's a significant factor because of uh, you know it's just it's a, it just seems harder to get people's attention, so that name rec is really important when you don't have an incumbent it really opens up that race and it actually engages the voters in that area. And, and, and Hamilton's a great example. You've got a really interesting race there with a, with, with a uh, particularly fairly uh, high profile candidate. And I suspect that's actually generating some interest and it's almost like its own, you know, mini, it, it may have its own mini turnout mm. compared to maybe what's happening uh, you know, provincially in this in this year's municipal elections, you may find uh you know, for example, I think in Toronto, I'm I get the sense I'm not doing any work in in these elections in in Ontario, but I get the sense that the Toronto race isn't near as exciting as the Hamilton race, and I suspect yeah. we may see that reflected in voter turnout. Andrew ends with us, Executive VP at Leger's Winnipeg office, talking about the municipal election less than a week away and the polling and what it means to you and me. Andrew, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, uh, Scott, and have a good rest of your program. And, hey, nice win by the Ticats the other night against the <laughs> Thanking you for that. That was, uh, that was a nail-biter. That, <laughs> that was a good one, though. I didn't uh, honestly didn't see it coming, but uh, good for Dane Evans. All right, it's uh, 446, it's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Not after we, not often we get praise from the West, is it? Especially when it comes to football. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've been seeing the horrific images uh, more, again, coming out of Ukraine, uh, Russia using Iranian-made kamikaze drones uh in uh attacking kiev and, and uh other uh, cities in ukraine uh and just creating uh, immense uh agony pain uh even over and above the explosive uh qualities that they have just the idea of these things buzzing around your neighborhood and could go off at any time you can imagine what that does uh, if you're a citizen trying to survive. Uh, let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, and he's with us now. Uh, Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, good afternoon. Always a pleasure to be on with you. So we uh, a few weeks ago, we are talking about nukes and how if you back Putin into a corner, we're going to, you know, you're going to see nukes and what have you. Uh, nobody was talking about drones. Now all of a sudden drones are the new issue. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, so um, we always knew that drone warfare was going to be the 21st century uh, key, one of the key weapons of the 21st century. We saw this in the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. You might sort of uh, remember there was a drone that was shot down, the Bakhtiar drone that is also in use in Ukraine uh, that had Canadian equipment on it. And that was sort of the first conflict where we really saw uh, drones deployed in a strategic fashion, but primarily against military targets. What makes this different is the extent to which drones are deployed. So on the scale, we're talking about hundreds of drones. So the swarming of Ukrainian air defenses by the Russians, knowing that even if the Ukrainians take out 80 drones out of a swarm of 100, 20 still get through and cause carnage. And the other that we see here is the extent to which drones can be used to try to instill civilian terror. We always knew that this was possible, uh, but it is the first time that we see drones being used uh, at scale uh, in order to um, uh, perpetrate uh, consistent, arguably not just human rights violations, but fundamental violations of the Geneva Convention and the law of armed conflict. So uh, that's a great point here, Christian. Um, uh, This is relatively new technology. What are the laws around this sort of thing? Can they be used in this way? Yeah, the problem is, of course, that um, in Canada or other countries, so 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 we don't have uh, armed drones uh, of this sort in Canada. But uh, countries that do use armed drones in democracies, um, these missions have to be carefully planned. They have to be vetted by a judge advocate general to make sure that they're compliant with domestic law, with the rules of engagement, with international law, with the Geneva Convention, with the law of armed conflict. Of course, none of that is going on in Russia. Somebody just decides they're going to fly the drones wherever they can sort of think they can have the the greatest impact. And so it's really this contrast in do you use drones in accordance with established norms and rules or do you use drones precisely to bring in in defiance of that rules-based order? And of course, what Putin and the Iranians are about, what brings them together on the premise that my enemy's enemy is my friend, uh, that they both despise the United States and they both despise the international rules-based order because they feel that order works to their disadvantage. And that shouldn't come as a surprise because that order is meant to advance democratic values and principles. And of course, we know that authoritarian thugs um, uh, don't believe in those. It, are drones the future for Russia? I mean, obviously, there's shortage of troops. Uh, they're calling up 300,000. Is this, is this their next angle? Well, let me say this. We need to think about in Canada about the extent to which drones are being used here and how prepared we are. You might have followed in the last couple of days conversations about European countries sending air defense systems and themselves not having enough air defense systems for their own protection, let alone being able to send some of those systems to Ukraine. Well, guess what we did in this country? We disbanded our air defense systems altogether. So it's not that we have to think about what we might be able to send. We have zero capacity that we could send in this country to intercept these types of drones if they were, for instance, dispatched against our own position positions in Latvia or against our partners in Ukraine. And so before we look elsewhere in the world about sort of what's happening with drone warfare, we need to wake up in this country and need to make sure that the Canadian Armed Forces, our own uh, our own military, is actually properly resourced for this type of 21st century warfare.
Have these views from, uh, have these allied views changed, specifically within Canada? We're seeing Christia Freeland step up and be a bit more aggressive on all of this. Are our views changing? Is this all about helping Ukraine still, or has it moved to the point, or how will it move to the point where something's got to be done about Putin? I see nobody in the current federal government being more aggressive. What I hear is lots of words and very little action. And the action that we see usually doesn't align particularly well with the words that are being pronounced. So what this is, is for me performative to try to appease the Canadian electorate. It doesn't actually look to me like anybody who's actually serious um, about uh, changing um, about making a serious commitment uh, to this sort of order that we are trying to protect and making sure that Canada actually provides uh, for its allies and for its partners. Um, if Minister Freeland uh, is genuinely serious about uh, changing matters, then perhaps we might want to start with supplying uh, liquefied natural gas to our allies in Europe uh, that are hard strapped for it. And we might also want to make sure that the Canadian Armed Forces are effectively equipped for the 21st century type of combat that we're actually seeing. I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, pondering in Ottawa about what needs to be done. The problem is that there are so many things that need to be done because we were so unprepared uh, that you know it's good that apparently somebody's thinking about the 21st century, um, um, but uh, there is a very long runway between what Minister Freeland has pronounced. Um, and the federal uh, government's ability even to start to deliver on those pronouncements. Uh, a few seconds left. I'm going to T-bone you here, Christian. Your thoughts on what we're seeing so far in the Emergencies Act inquiry. Don't have much time, but your thoughts on where the direction it's heading so far. Well, the problem with the inquiry is that the government has piled so many things into the inquiry precisely to distract from its own shortcomings uh, that there's so much noise now that we can't actually focus on the signals of what we need to make sure to, uh, to, to what, what needs to be done to ensure that the act never gets instrumentalized or invoked in this fashion again and how we modernize our national security, uh, legislative and other apparatus to be able to be prepared for these types of events. Christian Leprac, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the Macdonald Laurie Institute. Always a pleasure, Christian. Thanks for your time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, it has been fascinating, and I've only caught like little bits and pieces uh, here and there of the uh, testimony today by the Ottawa uh, Mayor, uh, Jim Watson, in regard to the Emergencies Act inquiry. And man, I just feel dirty watching all of this. <laughs> it is amazing to see the blame game that is going on uh, months after this is all over and how uh, we got to where we are. Um, and it started in Ottawa with truckers showing up, uh, a fight between the truckers and Justin Trudeau. I mean, that's how it started. This was mandates, uh, calling them misogynistic, calling them uh, racist, uh, 90% uh, vaccinated, uh, 10% that's not. And here we are uh, with a giant protest in Ottawa. And now Doug Ford has been brought into all this as well for his responsibility or lack thereof of the Ontario government. Let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queen's Park reporter for Global News. He's with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you for having me. So how did Doug Ford's name get dragged into this? Uh, this all started on the front steps of, of Ottawa and Justin Trudeau. How did it get to the provincial level? Well, I think we all know that Ottawa is actually in Ontario. And that was one of the, 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 the key parts of all of this. When a, a local But this is also on Wellington Street, which is federal jurisdiction, if you want to you know, say that. But uh, go ahead. 
Right, but this was ultimately um, an Ottawa police jurisdiction in terms of the policing effort, yes. right? And so the 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 local officials in Ottawa were looking really for help. They were looking for help from the federal government and from the provincial government. The federal government obviously, uh, you know, has the RCMP at its disposal. The Ontario government has the OPP at its disposal. And and one of the things that the Ottawa police are able to do is look for help for other from other um, uh, levels of government. And so the uh, mayor of Ottawa says, you know, they were looking to the province for help. They started setting up these tables, these information tables, looking to get the federal government and the provincial government at the table to kind of have a three-level government conversation about what exactly they could do to solve this problem. The mayor of Ottawa was uh, kind of pointing the blame at both the premier and the prime minister saying, listen, it's not Ottawa's uh, mandates that they were protesting. They were protesting federal mandates and provincial mandates. So they were looking for help. And at every turn, it seems they were really not getting any kind of engagement uh, from the provincial government. They spoke to the premier and the solicitor general, Sylvia Jones at the time, asked for them to be present at these meetings. And they consistently said, this is not a political issue. This is a policing matter. And so the premier refused to participate in these meetings, according to the mayor, Jim Watson. Uh, then Jim Watson was asking the solicitor general, OK, what, what kind of OPP support can you provide us? And the Solicitor General said, we can provide or we are providing 1,500 OPP officers on the ground. And Jim Watson says that was, quote, not true. He said there were 50 to 55 officers from the OPP at any given time. And they were really trying to determine why was it that the premier wasn't participating in this. And there was one conversation that Jim Watson had with the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, and there were notes made of this meeting. And during that time, Justin Trudeau said to Jim Watson, it seems like, quote, Doug Ford has been hiding from his responsibility on this for political reasons, end quote. And, and so it, it really seems like the provincial government, which could have provided support to Ottawa at the time, a city which is, you know, really a creature of the province, um, could have provided support. The city was begging for support, but for some reason, uh, Doug Ford and the provincial government wasn't really providing that support until they were, it seems, forced to declare a state of emergency and send more boots on the ground. Help us with this, Colin, because all we're hearing is politicians can't get involved in the work of the police. The OPP were already involved in this. So if if the mayor or the police chief or the prime minister can't do anything, what can Doug Ford do to influence those police? Well, Doug Ford could do what he eventually did. The premier declared a state of emergency, and that gave the province some powers to kind of go around whatever provincial laws are in place. Uh, one of the things the city of Ottawa had asked for, they'd asked the Ministry of Transportation to start targeting the commercial licenses, the operating licenses of these vehicles. A lot of truck drivers obviously are also, um, you know, the owners and the operators of those vehicles. And so they said specifically, you know, can you please start providing us with some, um, you know, options to tow these vehicles out by pulling their vehicle licenses? The Ministry of Transportation said, no, they didn't think that was a good idea initially. And then after the province had declared a state of emergency, that's exactly what they did. They started uh, suspending vehicle licenses, suspending uh, their vehicle plates, and really convincing drivers to pull out. So in effect, the government 
ended up using tools that they had at their disposal at the provincial level, but they only did so at the, it seemed like, after, you know, this, this protest had dragged on for several weeks. Uh, during this same call, uh, the mayor also called out uh, the prime minister for not supplying enough RCMP. And then when those RCMP arrived, they were just protecting uh, government buildings, Rideau College, Rideau Hall, uh, parliament buildings, or sorry, uh, the, uh, the House of Commons and such. Um, what about this conversation between the mayor and the prime minister, because every time we see and you talk to the uh, the premier and such, uh, the premier and the prime minister are buddy buddy. Uh, now we've got the prime minister saying Doug Ford has been hiding from his responsibilities on it for political reasons. Uh, Trudeau said it's important we don't let them get away from that. Uh, and then, of course, the Ottawa mayor talking about creating shame. And if you provide, meaning the prime minister provides the RCMP, then we can shame them. This sort of conversation, what does this do, Colin, in political circles, especially when every time we see the prime minister and the premier, it's like they're best of buddies. This is such an interesting dynamic here, because yesterday, Premier Doug Ford was standing with the Prime Minister at another news conference, and he said, listen, when it came to the usage of the Emergencies Act, we stand shoulder to shoulder with Prime Minister Trudeau. And he said, you know, that he largely agreed with the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Mm -hmm. And here we have the Prime Minister behind closed doors actually criticizing in a very, uh, you know, acute way, criticizing the Premier for trying to hide or trying to shirk his responsibility in this entire matter. You know, if you take a look at, at all of the testimony over yesterday and today that has been given by Ottawa officials at this inquiry, they seem to be building a case here that, you know, at the very outset, the truckers came in and nobody really wanted to take responsibility. The federal government no. said, no, nah, this is Ottawa's responsibility and Ontario's responsibility. Ontario said, this is a policing matter and it's up to Ottawa police. And Ottawa police said, well, listen, we don't have the resources to be able to deal with uh, a protest of this size. And plus, they're not protesting us. They're protesting you guys. So why don't you guys uh, come in and help us out here? And, and so, but you really have this you know, interesting question of who really is ultimately responsible. And it seemed like Ottawa police, they said they could only do so much because they could declare a state of emergency, but it didn't really give them the tools to do any more. And so they needed the province to act. And the city of Ottawa says the reason they declared the state of emergency was to compel or convince uh, the Doug Ford government to try to do something, get off the sidelines and, and act here. So, you know, this is really going to be a, a political hot potato for the premier because next Monday, the Ontario legislature is returning. Now he's facing calls to testify at this commission. The solicitor general, Sylvia Jones, who's now the health minister, is also facing calls to testify at this commission and defend what they did or what they did not do. And this is something that could dog the premier uh, for a little while yet. How do you vo do you volunteer for this, Colin? Do you get asked to appear in front of this? Because yeah, he keeps saying I haven't been asked, and so it, it, like, if it, will they ask him to appear at this? Uh, that, that that's a question I'm not entirely sure of the process of how this all works, but the premier says that he wasn't asked. The premier says that the Ontario government has provided hundreds of documents, and they've really. Um, you know, offered up officials both privately in conversations with um, with the lawyers for this inquiry, and they're available to provide further details if they're asked to. So now the question is, you know, what really happens next? Will the premier be called uh, to testify? And 
you know, because it, it really is coming down to what the premier and the government did or did not do. And had they acted sooner, could that convoy protests and all of the disruption associated with it, could it have brought, been brought to an end faster? That is becoming the central question here. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, we've been hearing uh, for a few weeks ago, a few months ago, uh, Doug Ford introducing the Strong Mayors uh, Bill, which will uh, allow mayors of Toronto and Ottawa to have more power. And this uh, in order to free up the log jam at the municipal level. It's affecting many municipal uh, city, uh, many city councils and municipal governments about uh, development, housing developments that just get stalled and go nowhere. A lot of it is NIMBYism. Um, and this uh, extra power is allowed to hopefully break some of those log jams. The prime minister, so the premier, announcing today that that could be expanded to uh, other uh, jurisdictions, other cities. Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He's with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks. Hope you are too. Uh, yes, thanks so much, Peter. Uh, obviously, the Premier uh, wanting to expand this program. His reasoning for it is to break up the log jam that seems to dominate many city councils um, and, and install a lot of these projects uh, and, and getting more housing built and such. Is this a good idea? Is this a good way to do it? Well, I mean, it's a set of powers that are going to be used for, you know, everything and not just uh, housing. And, you know, future governments may come up with other uh you know, responsibilities or uh, priorities that could be in, in the mayor's hands. Um, and, you know, a lot of the powers probably go much beyond uh, simply being able to approve more housing. Uh, you know, the, the powers where the mayor uh, gets to set the city budget, uh, gets to hire the city manager, uh, gets to rearrange the city bureaucracy and appoint department heads is, uh, you know, a set of powers that go well beyond uh, simply getting involved in housing and really produce a situation where we have mayors they call the shots and city councillors who have a much smaller role than they have at the moment in terms of developing priorities and ensuring city decisions kind of reflect the complexity of their communities. So it seems to be, uh, you know, a much bigger set of powers than uh, is really related to that very specific concern of, uh, of removing, uh, you know, blockages to uh, uh, residential development and uh, infill development in the GTA. If two-thirds of the council does not agree, they can overrule the mayor's decision, whatever that is. Is that adequate check and balance? Uh, well, I mean, I think what you do get then is a kind of a city council, which is really about check and balance. Uh, you know, it's a mayor has, you know, his party, if you like, or the, the councillors who support him, and then there will be some who disagree. And the, the question will be, you know, do they ever get to the two-thirds mark if they don't? you know, then they're kind of, you know, left behind in, in the making decision-making of the city. I think it's a bit different from the current situation where the mayor's role is much more about developing a consensus, right, of taking the dis disparate views of the councillors and trying to find a, a space of commonality where, you know, majorities can work together. So, you know, it's hard to say until we actually see these uh, work in practice, but I suspect we're going to get something that looks a lot more like... Uh, you know, the Ontario or the Canadian legislature, where you have the mayor and uh, his or her party uh, against, you know, a certain number of disgruntled councillors and, and, you know, much more division between two blocks on council rather than situations where from vote to vote, 
you get different uh, consensuses developing to, to support positions. Uh, it's interesting because when I've been talking to mayors about this, both past and present, or those trying to be mayor, uh, the reaction is quite different. If you talk to mayors that aren't running again or that are already elected, they think this is a great idea. And if you talk to people who are running for mayor, they don't think this is a very good idea. Uh, that being said, does it matter? Because it's optional. If you want to use it, you can use it. If you don't like using it, you don't have to. Yeah, well, I mean, it will be interesting to see how this gets put into place. I mean, we did have, in fact, most of the previous mayors of Toronto come out and say they thought it was not a great idea and encourage Toronto City Council, you know, that will form, uh, you know, another 10 days or so to actually figure out how are these how are these powers going to be used? Because under the, the law, the, the responsibility of the mayor around the budget is, you know, a, a clear one that has to be taken on. But the rest about appointing city managers and controlling city bureaucracies, uh, the language is a bit more permissive. And so we'll see ultimately if, if cities come up with ways of organizing that. But certainly, you know, the danger in, in large municipal bureaucracies like, you know, Toronto's, for instance, is one can get mayors, you know, who fundamentally rework uh, the administration when they get elected and the next mayor four years later completely redoes it. And in the process, you know, there's a lot of wasted time and resources in, in doing that and making those changes, but probably also uh, a lot of loss of motivation among uh, city staff who, you know, find themselves, uh, you know, bustled around at those times. So, yeah, I think there will be important discussions in different municipalities about how they want to put these rules into process. And again, I mean, you know, most of the, the current, uh, you know, mayors and city councillors are used to how the current system works. Um and, uh, you know, I probably have a harder time imagining, well, what will be the set of relationships if we go to, to the new model? What is a solution to a city hall that just can't get anything done? And we've all experienced that. Well, I mean, the solution comes every four years. <laughs> Citizens can get out and vote. Uh, I think, it, you know, it's a main one. Uh, you know, one of the, I think one of the reasons why we're seeing these changes is Doug Ford has a memory of his of his brother's term as mayor of Toronto. Uh, and, you know, that was an instance where, you know, Rob Ford got elected as mayor, but, you know, city council uh, didn't necessarily always want to go along with his plans. And the city bureaucracy sometimes pointed out why they weren't, you know, good ones. I think from Doug Ford's perspective, the fact of being elected uh, by the population as mayor should give you much more capacity like to make the calls and set the direction of the municipality. So, you know, I guess that's one way to to overcome these differences is to put a lot of power in the mayor's hands. Um, but that comes with its costs. It comes with the idea of municipal councils. You know, the real vote that matters is a vote for mayor. And when we elect a mayor, we put a hammer in their hand to kind of smash around what they want. Uh, you know, as opposed to the current system where we put a diverse group of people into a city council and hope that when they make decisions, a variety of different interests and ideas in the city get listened to and, and you get then, uh, you know, a more complex decision making. But again, that can come at a cost of uh, stalemate. And so uh, I think that's part of part of the trade-offs that are involved in the strong mayor power. You can get around these uh, these blockages, but you end up with decision making that's much narrower. And so in a complex city of 500,000 people like uh, Hamilton, do we really want to give so much concentrated power in, in one set of hands or do we feel more comfortable to have a, a number of our different communities and outlooks represented and having decision-making power on council? Can we keep doing the same things and expect a different outcome? 
Well, I mean, I guess we'll see uh, following this municipal election. Does changing people around mm -hmm. the table, in fact, produce different outcomes? You know, my suggestion would be that we've, you know, we've seen that uh, over time. I mean, there's been very little uh, turnover on Hamilton City Council. But in fact, just changing one or two people from election to election can really change the complexion in terms of how people relate to one another and their ability to work through some challenges. Peter Grepp with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, talking about the strong mayor's legislation and whether it will work and whether it goes beyond housing. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We needed the large number of 1,800 to get this situation under control and kick these yahoos out of our city who are disrupting the quality of life of the people of Ottawa. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, fast forward, we got what we wanted and we appreciate the federal government, the provincial government's support. We wanted it sooner because this thing should not have lasted three weeks. Well, then why didn't you do something sooner? Why didn't the prime minister and the police chief and the mayor of Ottawa say something in the first couple of days of this? Instead, they were hiding, and they thought it would go away, despite intelligence that says, you got a party coming, guys. How did you let this drag on? How did you let this drag on? Because it seems we're spending more time talking about what happened after the fact than we are how the hell we got to this place in, in, in the first place. And, it, you know, it just amazes me. I'm watching this uh, testimony of the mayor, and I just feel dirty after watching this. Watching, you know, three levels of, of politicians all grease each other and then stab each other in the back. It, it's unbelievable. Uh, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your spectator. He's here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well, but I want to talk about this phone call between the Prime Minister and the Mayor of Ottawa and where they are slagging Doug Ford behind his back. And we thought that the Prime Minister and the Premier were buddy-buddy, but it says, quote, Doug Ford, and this is the Prime Minister, Doug Ford has been hiding from his responsibility on it for political reasons. Trudeau said it was important we don't let them get away from that. And then Watson shared the frustration and said, we're happy to call them out if the province continues to drag its feet, but said it would be easier if the federal government was making its own clear commitments. Uh, he said, because they, they were asking for RCMP as well, most of which went to guarding sites like Rideau Cottage, the home of the prime minister, and the parliament buildings. So uh, over and above blaming everybody for this, what are your thoughts about these hidden conversations between these two members of the, you know, uh, the mayor of Ottawa was a former liberal, uh, talking about Doug Ford this way. How is this going to fly moving forward? I'll, the first thing I thought when I heard this conversation, Scott, was do you remember what the conversation was when this was going on and where the prime minister was? Yes, absolutely. In, I said he that. was in hiding. Yes. They had moved him to a secret location because some people had taken over the downtown. There was no... Well, he picked a fight any, and anyway. he ran away. He picked a fight and he ran away. And he's accusing so, Doug Ford of hiding. It was a little rich, that line in particular, because he's having presumably having this conversation from his hiding place. Yeah, so from his bunker from his. Yeah. So that was a little rich. Um, 
look, I'm going to talk about this in my show in a bit, but one of the things that I know we're only four days, five days into this thing, and we've got six weeks in total. So there's lots of different things that we can hear about, but usually when you're making your case, whether it's a criminal trial, if you're the prosecutor, or in this case, usually you would think that you're going to hit people with the big guns early. You want to make your case right off the bat. This is, this is the absolute reason why this had to happen. Now, maybe, maybe the person who's behind this is going about this a totally different way, but I'll tell you it better be because right now I absolutely can understand that the folks in Ottawa and the mayor were inconvenienced and were upset and they were tired of the horns blowing and they didn't like people uh, standing on the tomb of the unknown soldier and a lot of things like that. I, 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 that stuff, I all understand, but there is that I've heard so far, there has been nothing, not one thing that remotely comes close to rising to the level of the criteria that you need in order to invoke the emergencies act. It was an inconvenience and it was a pain in the butt, but this act is supposed to be for acts of insurrection where essentially you're worried the government is going to fall. What they were worried was going to fall was bouncy castles onto the flame of, you know, the, the perpetual flame or whatever you call it. Like there is nothing here yet. Now maybe they'll hit us with it later. Maybe they're building to it, but there is nothing yet that says, oh, yeah, there was an insurrection on the way. Right now, this was just a lot of horns and a lot of unpleasantness. That's not enough, I don't think. To me, I think this gives us a greater insight into how the Prime Minister operates. How is the Prime Minister going to face Doug Ford again when he is privately, between the mayor and him, calling him out and saying he's hiding? Well, uh, look, it, it, what's the conversation between Ford and, uh, and Trudeau like now? Do you really think that they liked each other to begin with, even though no. they put on the public face? They love pushing each other into the water. I don't for a second believe that all through COVID and everything else, that when they were being buddy-buddy, that really when they hung up, do you really think that when the, the media went away and the microphones went off, that they stood there and gave each other a bro hug and, you know, were like, Hey, why don't you swing by for a brew after? No, they, <laughs> uh, thanks. Bye. Like I never believe for a second there, there, there couldn't be two more unlike people. Yeah, there couldn't, yeah. I, I never believe that they were these best friends. And so here, I mean, look, would it surprise me if Doug Ford, at some point we find out that he had said something unkind about the prime minister. No, I, hope so. I don't, I really don't believe <laughs> that they really like each other. They just, it's yeah. got it's politics, everything in politics, almost, almost everything in politics is for public consumption. What is real in politics are these sort of are these phone calls that we hear behind the scenes? Well, yeah, yeah, but I'm I, saying, I think like, that's what it exposes. Anyway, all right, we're out of time. Scott, as always, thank you for the time. Scott Radley show coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great show, Scott. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. My name is 
Fraser, does this inquiry into the Emergencies Act make you feel better, worse, or stalling? I'm listening, Hamilton. 